I don't know the extent to which Web3 experiments in governance and sort of these democratic processes will help, but I get a sense that the experimentation might be useful. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. So this is it, the final episode of season four. At the end of last season, I looked back on all the conversations I'd had that year and tried to find some key takeaways, big macro themes or trends that I'd noticed running through a lot of my interviews. And as we reach the end of this season, I want to try to do something similar, but this time with a little bit of help. Azima Zar is an entrepreneur, investor, and the author of The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. He's also the host of a great podcast called The Exponential View, which is, well, a lot like this one. Both Azim and I spend a lot of time talking to really smart people about technology. So I wanted to sit down with him and find out what he's learned from doing his podcast, where he thinks tech is going, what he's worried about, and whether or not he thinks we're ready to govern a new generation of technology. As you'll hear in the interview, we come at this conversation from slightly different perspectives, but we fundamentally agree on the importance of understanding how technologies are reshaping our democratic societies. Here's my conversation with Azim Azar. All right. So, Azim, it's great to chat with you. I'm looking forward to sort of talking to you about a whole host of things we've sort of run through this year, and you have as well, um, on your podcast, of which I'm a big fan. First, though, what do you make of this Elon Musk offer? Well, it's fascinating in so many different ways. So, Musk has made an offer to acquire the whole of Twitter in cash at a significant premium to the, the current share price. And, you know, let's understand who he is. Uh, He's a fantastically capable entrepreneur, able to pull together remarkable teams to tackle really difficult engineering problems in Tesla, in SpaceX, and so on. But he's not a culture person. He's not a media entrepreneur. He solves really difficult engineering problems, planetary scale engineering problems. And so the question is, is the future of Twitter an engineering problem, or is it some other kind of issue? And I guess one of the things that I would be concerned with is that Twitter is really important for information dissemination, for communication, for whatever modern democracy ends up becoming. And with that, you need to think with a certain degree of inclusion and criticality. And Musk hasn't always demonstrated a lot of acuity when it comes to those things. If you think about the hot pants and flamethrower and I suppose the innocent humour of naming his Teslas so that they read S3XY sexy, you know, that's a kind of insouciance that can be useful in certain areas. But when we start to look at this really kind of fundamental way in which public opinion gets demonstrated, deliberated and shaped, you sort of think, what is the right match for the mogul who should own this, if indeed any single person should? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot in there. I mean, I, in some ways, Twitter, I mean, we've 
devolved so much of that social role that you mentioned to a private company. So we've put tremendous responsibility inside one company for the nature of our public speech. Mm. And yet it is a private entity, but it's a private entity that has been doing some things to kind of clean itself up over the last few years. And I guess my concern is that he's doing this in part to push back against some of the very things they've done to take some responsibility over the public square. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that Twitter and a number of other companies, and we should include, you know, in this Microsoft as well, in the case of what it does in other areas, has recognized that they have these additional obligations. You can say, well, they're just taking the long-term view that in order to be profitable, they need functioning societies. So, yeah, but, so but that's the, what they do. That's the market functioning then. Right? That's the market <laughs> functioning, right? Yeah. But you could also argue that they realize that there are certain types of products where there is this additional uh, responsibility. And I suspect it's baked in quite a lot into the culture of people who now work in Twitter. We're many, many years away from when Twitter shut its walls down and you would go to them and say, but you've got this public role and they'd go, no, but we have to sell tweets through the API. That team has moved on. So there's also a question about even if you do acquire a company, a little bit like, you know, any emperor, you are still reliant on the coalitions of capability and the cultural beliefs and the things that people value within the organization to deliver on it. So it's not like he can go in there and snap his fingers and say, you know, we're going to stop labeling things Chinese state affiliated media because I've changed my mind. I mean, that involves changes to code. People sign it off. There's internal processes. Will those people stay? Will they leave? So I think that that in of itself means that it's not as straightforward as it looks. But of course, a leader can shape the direction of a company. Now, I don't know whether Musk has ever bought a company as mature as this rather than starting them or getting them when they're very, very young, as he did with Tesla, so has a chance to shape it. So that's another dimension to consider. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to talk to you a bunch of sort of bigger trends in the last year in the tech space, but I'm also interesting how you're sort of feeling about this space and these conversations at the moment. I have to say, I I feel a fair amount of concern having watched some of these evolutions over the last year and talked to some pretty great people about them. But I, I get the sense you're a little more optimistic about where we're headed and what we're building. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that true? Like, how are you feeling about the future we're building at the moment? I'm much, much more optimistic than, you know, when I, I wrote my book, uh, which in the US and Canada is called The Exponential Age and elsewhere it's called Exponential. And I think optimists read the book and said, this guy's a real pessimist. And pessimists read it and said, God, he's a techno-utopian. So I sort of struck this interesting balance. But actually, I feel kind of pragmatically optimistic. And in the last six weeks since the invasion of Ukraine by Putin and by Russia and the broad support it has in Russia and the response to various Chinese authorities to small amounts of covid in China has made me feel much, much more optimistic, in fact, than I did seven or eight weeks ago. And it's also made me review my kind of prior assumptions. And I think the reason that I feel optimistic is that one set of threats, this threat of a kind of central authoritarian alternative to a liberal rights oriented society that gives people enough freedom to express themselves and to invent and enterprise, the authoritarian alternative has been demonstrated to be 
much, much weaker. So we don't need to say much about Russia. But, you know, interestingly, Russia between the year 2000 and 2020 was the only one of the 25 or 30 richest countries in the world where the labor share of national income didn't decline, right? In every other country, labor share declined. And we were saying it's because of concentration of power to large companies. And you look at Russia now, I mean, it's got nothing, right? There's no industry, there's extraction, it can't even make its own tractors. If you look at what's happened in China with respect to COVID, and there have been these really, really extreme lockdowns, and, and it's, it is a kind of really grim dystopia when you see the videos that are coming out there, you're seeing a system that hasn't been able to really contend with this external threat. And when we look a lot about the sort of technological threat of China, what we see is that beyond the kind of gross sum total headlines, there are more machine learning people in China, there are more papers produced. When you actually look at where the research happens, the breakthrough ideas, those are still happening largely in the West. And by West, I you know, include South Korea and Japan you know, in that. And so the reason I feel more optimistic is because I think that these two separate incidences, COVID in China, but sort of backed on the fact that 40 years in, they're still struggling to build a semiconductor industry. And the kind of the Russian alternative have demonstrated, demonstrably been weaker than the model that we have. And when you look at the, you know, the difference between the European model and the American model is so narrow when you compare it to the difference between the European or American model and the Russian model or the Chinese model or the Saudi model. And so I think that that is sort of a demonstrable sense of, of a set of mechanisms at work. Then when we come to the technology issues, part of the challenge that I think emerged over the last 30 or 40 years was the relative sleepiness of non-technologists to understand the potential of the technologies and how important they needed to be and how much time they needed to take in our public debate. And I think we've really woken up to that discussion and you're starting to see a much wider discussion about the importance for sake of argument of nuclear power or renewables as a consequence of the invasion of Ukraine. And you're starting to see this real sense of needing to talk about technology and innovation in industry at a sort of national level. That's not to say this is governments now doing it rather than enterprise. That is to say that our dialogue, our national dialogue about the things that are important can shift towards things that actually matter like innovation and science and welfare rather than things that didn't. And that has made me feel a bit more optimistic just in the last couple of months. And I guess on both of those fronts, I mean, I, I agree in some aspects of that optimism. I'm also remain concerned, I think, on the geopolitical end, whether an increasing divide between illiberal regimes and Western democratic regimes, which I think we're seeing kind of more severe fault lines now, in part because of the way the West has responded to this invasion and greater alliance between China and Russia and a few other countries could actually hasten some of the spread of the Chinese tech stack here, which I've always been concerned is like just deeply illiberal and could lead in certain countries to sort of a liberal entrenchment as opposed and, and in countries that were previously democratizing as well. So, I mean, there, there is a risk there, right, of that having the opposite effect, I think. There is a risk. But, you know, the China-Russia offering is pretty thin, right? It's like it's fossil fuels, 
through a kind of kleptocratic mechanism. And so, you know, in my book, I talk a lot about the splintering of the fault lines that kind of splinter this notion of a flat world. And some of them I didn't get to talk about in the book because it was too broad, but a lot of them were relating to the strategic importance of technology that would mean that governments would start to say, look, our primary role, which is to keep our citizens safe, even if they don't agree with our definition of safety, mm-hmm. is at risk if we don't own the technology. But there was another aspect to all of this, which is that the in this exponential age, the products that we produce, the nature of our economy becomes increasingly complex and it becomes more and more complex revolving around knowledge-based assets, intangible assets, software, data, creativity. And the question is, what type of political settlement best facilitates an exponential economy? Because when you're mining and extracting and ordering people to go down a mine and Adam Smith like, you do the chiseling, I'll do the loading of the truck, you know, Bob will do the driving. You can take a a top-down hierarchical approach, a very control-oriented approach to that kind of system. But in the exponential age, and you know, you're an academic, you'll understand this when you look at your PhD students, you can't say to them, here's a set of things in your research you can't think about. Right. You can't challenge what happened in Tiananmen Square in 1989. You can't ask these types of questions. Well, that constrains a researcher, that constrains a scientist. And so the more I think about it, and this is an idea that I'm playing about with at the moment, is how do you actually become an astonishing software developer? or an astonishing producer of cultural products, if your entry point is, there are things you're not allowed to think about, talk about, or do. And so that I think is a strategic disadvantage for control-oriented societies. And then that gets to the next point, which is that that means that the products that we want and the products that we desire will not be produced by those. So even if you are some country that's on a shaky footing with its relationship with democracy, like in India or a Pakistan, your people will still want the iPhone. They will still aspire to the lifestyle that is presented to them in Netflix, not what is on RuTube or what comes out of Svedrolosk factory number 17. And I think that that is a reason to feel like that even if walls do start to go up, the places where the innovation that matters will happen will increasingly be ones where people can think and act more freely. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, what makes me the most optimistic or has recently is what you said about the governance conversation and the public conversation about the way these technologies are centered in our society just changing radically. I've been working on this for a decade, talking about the policy implications of these technologies. And in the last two or three years, that whole discourse has radically changed. So I think that on one hand, and I also buy your exponential age thesis, that there are some technologies that are just going to advance incredibly quickly over the next, say, decade. Yeah. Do you think that the governance conversation we're having, which I agree is way better than it was a few years ago, is capable of responding to the set of technologies you think are really going to explode? I mean, you know, the heart of the book is that they haven't historically and that they need to. And I talk a little bit about sort of three values that become important from the perspective of governance, you know, design. And one of them is this idea of commonality that 
we benefit from having kind of common standards or collective approaches to uh, the issues that are raised by technologies. The second is this notion of flexibility when it comes to the rules that we set, because things do change quite quickly, in a sense. And the third is, you know, engineering for a resilience. Now, they all play key roles. I mean, flexibility and resilience, as any bodybuilder knows, go hand in hand, right? So big muscles should also be muscles that are, <laughs> that's, that sort of stretch, right? You should have that flexibility. And that becomes important because the pace of change is such that we don't necessarily know where we end up. So what does flexible and resilient governance looks like? It looks like on the one hand, sandboxes for experiments. It also looks at for policy experiments, right? Like government for experiments. For policy yeah. experiments, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and also for, for figuring out what a risk really is. So a lot of financial regulators in Singapore and in the UK, for example, have policy sandboxes where startups can go in and play around with greater oversight, but more freedom. And what happens is that that allows the learning loop, the famous OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act loop, to take place in policy circles quite quickly. See, that's interesting. If we're putting risk at the center of some of these new governance regimes, which the DSA is doing, certainly, that becomes really important, right? Like, We need a place where companies can explore what risk means for their products. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you need to establish that as a, because we don't actually know necessarily where these technologies will end up. And I think there's another aspect of flexibility, which is something that you have seen, I think, in the DSA and in the Digital Market Act, which is the idea of, you know, increasing obligations as firms get larger and larger. And, you know, that is simply a method of saying that, you know, what we would apply to a Google, we wouldn't necessarily apply to a much smaller firm like a Twitter. And, a recognition that these network effects tend to become, you know, magnified not just in scale, but also in scope. So I think that that becomes a really important dimension. But that first value, that idea of commonality, I think is really an important one. It's about saying that where we start to get to operations where it looks a little bit monopoly-like, that we now need to look at these activities as part of the common good, some kind of public good. And this comes back to the, your point about where the governance discussion is. I mean, if you think about how Microsoft now talks about its societal obligations compared to how they talked about them 20 years ago, it's completely different. And it's some of the same people involved. They've recognised that actually they do have a common obligation because they're operating large-scale pseudo-public infrastructure. And I think that that's a really important dynamic. I'm not sure it necessarily needs to be always be legislated for and how precisely it needs to be legislated for because I'm not um, an expert in the field. I mean, the good news about legislation is that it's there and people can look at it and agree what it needs to be. The bad news is that it also creates a standard around which every lawyer then tries to figure their way around. Whereas if it can be something that looks like a sort of a public service value, maybe that's a good first start.
one of the ironies right now is that when you do have both governments stepping into the regulatory space, which in my view is broadly a positive, mm -hmm. and you have the large global companies taking on degrees of responsibility in their product safety and their design that five years ago would have seemed unlikely. Mm -hmm. You have this broader push right now to a decentralized web. And these two things are in tension with one another. <laughs> State governance and large platforms taking responsibility are acts of centralization and come with some benefits. And yet we have this parallel pushback now for a constellation of technologies that like, is broadly, I guess, being called Web3. And I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think about that tension and, and this set of technologies that are being talked about now in a way, even a year ago, they weren't, frankly. I mean, I'd been kind of avoiding the conversation about Web3 for as long as possible. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like utterly unavoidable. I mean, it's an incredibly divisive conversation. Either this thing's going to save the internet or uh, radically fragment it. I'm curious where you land on that. Yeah, it's so divisive. And so much so that if I write about Web3 and I don't put every argument for each side in any essay, even in a tweet, you'll get torn apart by one or t'other side, right? And uh, so, you know, there's one argument which says it's always platform competition that matters and it's not about what regulators do that matter. And while that's historically been the case, I think it is really important that regulators do come in now, even if Web 2 is sunsetting, because it will take time to sunset. But it also allows us to set a standard for what ends up being acceptable. And I think that that's quite important. And then the, I think the thing that, that's really interesting about Web3 is that on the one hand, you've got the sort of hyper libertarians and some of the original cryptographers who built some of these sort of core modules that have turned into these protocols, you know, are pretty far on the right libertarian end of different, slightly different flavors. And then on the other hand, you've got a lot of the uh, sort of commons governance people who live off the economics of Eleanor Ostrom, uh, who studied, you know, indigenous people's resort management of natural resources, right? So you've got this sort of extreme set of extremes. And so the question is, with that set of extremes, what does that allow us to do? And um, I actually again, I feel a little bit optimistic about where some of this goes. So what we know is that if you perpetrate a Bitcoin fraud or many other types of frauds, we can find you because there's a non-repudiable ledger of who traded what to whom. And at some point when you move this into fiat currency, as in, in other words, dollars that you can spend on Reese's Pieces or Cheetos, you've had to go through a know your customer process. And you can be tracked and Elliptic and other companies, Chainalysis can track these frauds. So look, let's acknowledge that that's there. Let's also acknowledge that Web3 is complete Wild West. I mean, personally, I've lost five or six Ethereum on scams on Web3 that, that have taken place, two of which looked really, really like super pro. One of which was classic bit of social engineering where someone pretended to be a friend. So there's also all of that. But I mean, that's in the context of enormous amount of innovation right now. But I think the other thing that's interesting is that you will start to see competing modalities. And the thing about Web3 is that Web3 is not like a world government. You know, Web3 slices aspects of economic or social behavior and packages it into little pieces. So one example is Helium. Helium is a Web3 project that is building a decentralized 
low power wireless network for IoT devices. So if you've got an IoT device like um, a sensor in your garden or something in your car, right now it needs to connect to the Verizon or Vodafone network. And what Helium allows us to do is it allows us to all buy little Helium routers, connect them to our Wi-Fi and earn Helium tokens, which we can trade for US dollars if we want to. And from a decentralized basis, we can build a global low power long range wireless network for IoT devices. That's really, really interesting. It's really interesting because it means now me with 500 bucks can participate in that, that wealth creation, whereas previously I'd have to have $50 billion to win the, buy the spectrum and build the towers and so on. Now, Helium will be governed through its protocol in some way, and it's going to compete with half a dozen other mechanisms out there, some of which will be run by large companies. So what we actually have is a, a set of competing governance models for the management of public resources. And I think that that is interesting and we shouldn't feel too scared about it. And I want to give you the kind of count, sorry about that, it's a really long answer, but no, 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 I, want to, I want to give you the kind of counter example to this, right? So. You know, if we look at the way that electrical power has been produced over the last hundred years, it's through these massive power stations. They cost a billion to $10 billion to build. And they pump in one direction down a unidirectional grid. And so the governance of electricity is done at a national level by national laws. And it's not really something that we as communities and voters really ever think about. Now, as we've started to see a shift to more localized energy production, solar and wind, where you need 50 million or 5 million, or if you're a homeowner, you need $10,000, right? You start to get a tension and between where that governance is taking place. And you go to South Africa, where uh, the town of Cape Town has more than abundance of electricity provision because of wind farms and, and solar, but South Africa as a whole has a really poor energy infrastructure, but ESCOM is a national grid and the laws are mandated nationally. And so people in Cape Town were suffering power shortages and brownouts because there was a disconnect between that governance, right? The principle of subsidiarity, which is that decisions should be taken as close as possible to the people who are affected by them has got broken. And so the alternative to kind of these decentralized systems has been these sort of national power structures, which are less national in the US, right? You're the federal system, but in, in Europe and other parts of the world, it's still national. And they're not necessarily willing to devolve their power down to where the technology allows those discussions to now take place. So the, the sort of reverse argument of helium, where you've got the governance happening, really you and I sharing our Wi-Fi routers is let's look at what happens with national power governance as the technologies have really shifted. So I, I'm one of the areas that I'm really interested in is this question about, this is not by the way about the a notion of the end of the nation state, which is like this kind of techno utopian thing that says life was amazing in 14th century Florence and has gone downhill since then and we should all be in city states. And so what's exciting for me about Web3 is not, you know, the fact that my NFT got sold for $500 or whatever it didn't get sold for. It's this idea that we have these competing mechanisms for how we manage resources and how we participate in the management of those resources that I think is quite interesting. So I'm quite intrigued as to, you know, where this ends up. But just remember my starting point, which is that 
in the transition period, our justice systems and our states still have the power because all this stuff is kind of non-repudiable and it's tracked and it's logged on these public ledgers. Yeah, and I'm I'm fascinated by the work that governance is doing, the term governance in a lot of this conversation. Because yes, there is how one, a DAO can create a new form of governing a private entity or a collaboration or whatever it might be, an energy grid. But it still has to abide by democratic governance in the states in which it resides. And those are very different things with very different objectives. Efficiently governing an investment fund is very different than democratically governing and protecting rights in a state and securing the economic interests of citizens in a state. And those can be in direct opposition, and they they have been in all sorts of other previous governance structures or technological structures or corporate structures. So I'm, I'm curious how you see that conversation about governing human activity at that sort of interpersonal or technological level bumping up against how we collectively govern ourselves. And I I don't see that being talked a lot about in the Web3 world, other than is in the revolutionary spirit you mentioned, right? Which (laughs) I I don't think is going to play out, frankly. I mean, for some of the technical reasons you said, but also just because like, I actually think collective democratic governance in liberal societies has worked out pretty well. And I think we still will continue to do it in some capacity. So how do you deal with that tension? Well, I mean, I think that you're right about the, the sort of use of the word governance, and it's, it is, you're very kind saying it's doing a lot of work there. I mean, by mechanisms of governance, right, we're really thinking about the, I'm thinking about the question of how we identify the mission, the goal, objectives of an entity, how those decisions get made in order to achieve that goal, who gets to participate in that, who gets to review that. And so governance is something that obviously already exists outside of democratic states, right? Exists in charities and companies and, you know, even in families, right? And the thing that's interesting is if there are new new models that are emerging or if there are new there are classes of resources that haven't lent themselves to other types of management and governance. I think that's quite interesting. And also, let's be really clear that outside of a slightly turtle standing on turtle standing on turtle in crypto, there aren't really great examples of the governance actually systems that exist provably being better than other systems. Right. Well, and and many cases of the opposite, frankly, where there's a mirage of participation when really it's only three or four people making decisions inside a supposedly decentralized DAO, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. But then I think there is a question about how these things do sit with our existing democratic processes. And, you know, trust in democracy has been largely declining in many, many of the countries that have got to where they've got to because they were democracies. And if you look at the the French uh, election, the first round election, you know, 25% of people voted for basically the hard right and 20 odd percent voted for the hard left. So there is a question about, you know, is this a wobble or is it time for some sort of adjustment? And I think that the claim that the model of democracy that we have achieved in it's slightly different conceptions in Germany and the UK and the US and uh, Japan 
is the perfect model, the best model, is a very, very high standard to achieve. So I question that claim. What I do think is that the tension that emerges between these new experiments and where the sort of state sits allows us to have good questions about what should get modified. And what rights we want to prioritize. And what we end up wanting to prioritize. I mean, I also think that we should be um, I've been really fascinated by the, you know, when I look at things like open source and you see this really participatory democracy and people can say, yeah, but only 50 people worked on, you know, that particular bit of software. But anyone could have done, right? And if you didn't work on Hadoop or on Linux, well, that was your democratic choice not to work on it. You could have worked on it and you could have become the best at it and you could have therefore had the influence you wanted on it. And, you know, you didn't. But if you look at So when you look at what happens within open source and then you look at the way in which we get to express ourselves democratically, it's such a blunt instrument. And so I've been looking at things like um, deliberative democracy, uh, modes of sort of ongoing consultation, and I found them to be pretty interesting. So for a few years, I was on the board of the Ada Lovelace Institute, which is an ethics research group in, in London. I'm on a big, their data working group at the moment. Oh, you, okay, right. To release a right. big report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Reema Patel, who was there for a few years, ran a load of projects around biometrics. And she went out and did these citizens juries. And essentially in a citizens jury, what you do is you get kind of groups of people who are drawn from the public and they get presented with expert evidence and expert argument, and then they get taken through a sort of facilitated discussion. And what comes out is an assessment of what the real issues are and how to frame them. And that actually then allows you to put that through a democratic process. And I think that the best example of what happened, the effectiveness of this was in Ireland recently, where they had a referendum on abortion laws. And that's been a really hot, real hot potato in Ireland for a long time. And they ran a set of citizens juries for a couple of years before the referendum to tease out what the real issues were. And in the end, that referendum passed and it sort of liberalised the abortion laws somewhat. But the assessment that political scientists have done since then on the quality of debate and the way in which issues got fleshed out by looking at discussions that happened in Parliament versus in the citizens' juries demonstrated that there was a much broader, more inclusive conversation in the citizens' juries than in the sort of parliamentary space. And so I think that there are tweaks. And how do these tweaks then connect back to what we learn about from internet culture and open source? The art of being a in a citizens' jury is about being able to discuss what the issues are and hear those issues and hear from experts in that field. And for many of us who've been involved in internet culture for a long time, since well before Mike Godwin's law came in force, which was at Godwin's law, at some point in a comment thread, someone will call someone a Nazi, you know, sort of coined in the early 90s, is that that's the kind of debate that the internet has fermented and created and enabled. And so when we start to look at things like participatory democracy and what the technology allows and what we've learned from internet culture, I do wonder whether there are opportunities to layer some of that learning into the ways in which our democracies function. Now, the reason why this then starts to put pressure on the kind of top-down state-driven democracy is that at a top-down level, 
you can't be very segmented. You have to be very broad. And because of the constraints of time, you can only deal with the largest issues. Whereas if you're able to subsidiarize those powers, you can actually enable, bring citizens in on localized decisions more regularly. And as an example of that, I mean, this is something that happens in Taiwan, but the city of Paris has enabled a permanent rotating set of citizens' juries to continuously deliberate on the democratic issues that are of relevance for citizens in Paris and to help form the agenda for what the elected representatives should be discussing. So I think that there are things, and, and I don't know the extent to which Web3 experiments in governance and sort of these democratic processes will help, but I get a sense that the experimentation might be useful. Yeah, like you, you took that. And I wasn't expecting you to go into that direction, but it's one I deeply agree with you on. I, I interviewed Elaine Landamore this year about her open democracy work and have been involved in two citizens' assemblies in Canada on tech regulation, where we've brought now two groups of, of randomly selected Canadians together for six months to explore how they would regulate the internet. And I, I agree with you. It is truly astounding what happens when you put people in a room together to talk about a thing for a period of time. And on this topic in particular, it's kind of fascinating because they come in used to having the debate about how to regulate social media on social media. So they think they all hate each other and they think they're deeply polarized and they think there's no solution to this. And then you put them in an actual room together off of social media and they basically agree on what should happen. Like, it is really remarkable. That's fascinating. What do they agree on? I'm curious. So the project that we had was a commission of kind of esteemed people so that I co-chair with the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, right? So like a, a high-level commission and a citizens' assembly. And they work in parallel for six months on the same question. And what happens, we've done it twice now, is the citizens come to a far more radical view of how the state should regulate social media than the group of legal experts, tech experts, governance experts. So like they're deeply, deeply concerned about the problem and they look to the state to solve it. It really is incredible. But the challenge is, and this is where I, I, I see some of the limitations and maybe some of my concerns about the Web3 governance stuff spill into this, is the challenge with these assemblies is in broader legitimacy because it works for 42 people. But if it is not either normalized in our politics, so like legitimized via actual governance change, mm -hmm. or far more participatory than it actually is, then I think its ultimate effect is limited democratically, its democratic effect. And I worry in some of the Web3 governance conversations that we've set, and this was the case in open source too, to so a certain degree, that we've set the technological bar so high for participating that we're going to devolve this governance responsibility, even if it is technically open and anybody can participate, to a very small number of people in our society without any real democratic accountability. So I, I think there's, there, I agree with you, there's lessons between these Web3 communities and these kind of more deliberative democracy processes. But at some point, both need collective buy-in from society. And I'm not sure we have the mechanism in either for that yet. Yeah, that's a really important point. I guess when I look at some of the 
Web3 projects. And I'm steering away from the ones that I think are harder to get our heads around, right? So the ones that are the hardest are the ones that are trying to create new money because that's a sort of state's core sort of business and has been for a couple of hundred years. But the ones that are managing resources, whether it's bandwidth or data or file storage, those I think are quite interesting. And it's worth at some point before we get into the really gnarly discussion to say, well, where does it work where we can kind of contain the activities of this particular network? I mean, I'll give you another example is a a service called Numeri. So Numeri runs effectively an investment fund. And you get, if you're, you, you submit algorithms for trading. And if your algorithm makes money, you earn Numeri tokens, but actually you earn more if you're accurate with your prediction of how well your algorithm will do relative to everyone else's algorithm. So what that's done is that sort of overlapped the question of democratic governance with the question of collective intelligence, right? How do you you know, have a load of collective bad guesses that end up being much, much better than an individual's guess? And I, you know that's, that's interesting because we can look at that and we can say the extent to which we think this is a useful industrial activity Uh, This is a really sort of sensible thing to be doing and people are staking correctly and, you know, we are evaluating those ideas, you know, their sense of evaluation and there are incentives in play that prevent people cheating. There's another example from um, an economist called Glenn Whale, who uh, is a brilliant guy at Microsoft Research. But he has this one sort of notion where he says, well, people should self-declare their assets and then pay tax on their self-declaration. But if they've declared a price, they also are obliged to sell those assets to anyone who meets that price. So if you've got like the Mona Lisa in your living room and you say, my assets are $15, so I should pay a dollar in tax, I can come and buy it from you for $15, right? Which is clever, right? Because what it does is in there, it sort of aligns incentives and it gives people reasons not to cheat the system. And those types of mechanisms, I think, exist within a lot of Web3 systems, and therefore they should get us to a higher degree of trustworthy behavior. This question that you've raised, though, which is the technical bar to get in being as high as it is, which is really high. I mean, I've played around in some DAOs and DAOs, and I struggle, right? I struggle to engage and, and connect. But the very and fact you've lost significant... <laughs> monetary yeah. value of Ethereum. <laughs> and like, right. if, if that's happening to you, like, what's that doing to the average retail investor, right? But then the question I think is, what ends up, a lot of decisions that are taken today are, you know, they're taken by a technocratic bureaucracy. And so they take place regardless of who is actually elected and in power. So even when Donald Trump was in power and loved coal, American emissions, carbon emissions per dollar of GDP generated went down because there are other aspects of the system. There is the market forces, the market responding to innovation. There are the economic and financial incentives. There's also what the bureaucracy is capable of implementing or wants to implement. And those people also tend to be a rather evidence-driven and data-driven. And so cities around the world whether they've got left-wing or right-wing mayors, have got cycle lanes and they've got parking for scooters. I've just come back from Miami and 
there are segregated cycle lanes all over the place. This is a Republican city. And so, you know, I think we also ought to recognise that the actual scope for democratic choice is also constrained slightly by other aspects of the system. I've talked about a technocratic bureaucracy that is really important in modern states because what we do is so complex. But it's also true in terms of what innovation enables and allows us to do. And it's also true in terms of how capital markets respond. I mean, we know, for example, that it does not matter one hoot what any politician says about coal or gas. The amount of coal or gas that's going to be consumed is going to go down over the next 10 or 15 years. It does not matter because it's already been priced into the market. It's been priced in because if you want to build a coal plant, a coal power station, you'll pay 8 to 10% higher interest rates than if you're building a solar plant. And if you want to finance a coal mine, it's getting harder and harder to do so. Not necessarily because of government legislation or regulation, but because of... But in part, but in part. But even by the threat of it. Yeah, exactly. Right, by the prospect of it and by the fact that actually the reinsurers are starting to say, listen, someone's going to have to pay for this climate risk. I don't care who's in power. And that's going to get passed through the capital markets. So that's also, I think, something that we should bear in mind. Then when we then think about what Web3 can do to that, it can somehow render a little bit more transparent and public some of that hidden technocratic decision-making. And maybe that transparency is helpful. Now, look, what I've gone off and done here... Taylor is I've given you this really like let's find some roses right in this kind of garden argument and the only reason I do that is I haven't made up my mind yet and so I am really familiar with the the negative case so I'm exploring now what the positive case might look like because that will help me make up my mind. That was my conversation with Azim Azar. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's our last episode of the season. I'm Taylor Owen. Thank you for listening.